You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Slaves No Longer, we walk through Romans chapter 6 and explore the beautiful truth that in Christ we are no longer slaves to sin. Have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Depending on where that is in your Bible, be ready to go back to Romans 5. You might have to flip back so we can look at Paul's argument. Again, as Nate alluded to, we're going to begin a series looking and walking through the chapter in Romans that talks about how we are slaves no longer. We have been freed from the power of sin. I'm still trying to recover from worship, so. Let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, we just thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the, the breath in our lungs that we were able to sing your word to worship you. And Father, as we look into your word today, Lord, I've I just been praying all week that the Holy Spirit would convince us, that would convince us this is our identity. This is who we are. We are in Christ. We are a child of God. And sin has zero power over us. Lord, help us to see that, to believe that, and to live that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our time together over the last couple of weeks, we have been explored the topic of God's grace. God giving gifts to us for our good and His glory. We also explored the idea of faith in future grace. We looked um, the absolute requirement of obedience. We looked at the absolute requirements of our obedience to final salvation. Like whenever we get to final salvation, we're standing before God. We, we need to look back over our lives and whether or not there's some good works there, there's some obedience there, will determine whether or not that faith that we declared back then was, was true or not. We kind of unpacked that at the beginning of our grace series. We, and what we found is we need help. We can't fulfill that obedience. We can't do it in our own effort. We need God's grace. We need some promises of God to believe in and to trust in his grace that will meet us there at that moment in time where we need to obey his word or to put ourselves aside to love another. We focused in on one specific sin, and that is the sin of anxiety, and showed how faith in future grace severs the root of the sin of anxiety. Last week, we waded a little deeper into the definition of faith, meaning receiving Christ as the supremely valuable treasure that he is, and being satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in him. Faith is living life, in the power of another. If we're saying that we, we have faith in Christ, we have faith in Jesus, we're living our lives in the power that he's provided us through his spirit. 
We do not kill sin by only trying to stop it. If, if we're living our lives each and every day and we're trying to get up each and every day and we're trying to, to strive to follow Christ, if whenever sin comes about and we know about the sin that we struggle with, if all we're trying to do is stop, 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 we're going to fail constantly. We must replace that with a greater affection. We must place that, replace that with a, a greater desire, a greater satisfaction. And that satisfaction that we argued over the last several weeks is Christ. And not only just Christ, but everything that he promised for us in his word. What the Bible tells us, brother and sister, is if you are in Christ, if you have a union with Christ, you are already dead to sin. You just need to believe that and watch the amazing things that God's grace does for your obedience. That is what we're going to talk about for the next couple weeks as we unpack chapter 6 of the book of Romans. We just say it again, saint, brother and sister in Christ, you are dead to sin. Sin has no power over you. The only power sin has in your life is what you give it, is what you give it. This is what Paul is going to show us in chapter 6 of Romans. Today we're going to look at just two verses out of the chapter. But to understand those verses, we must understand Paul's argument leading up to these verses. So Romans 6, 1-2 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2 says, By no means. How can we die to sin, still live in it? So he's starting off this chapter with, with two questions. So we kind of got to go back and look at, okay, he's posing two questions. Is he arguing with somebody? Is he just talking to himself? Is he being a good teacher? What's happening here? Why is he starting this chapter with two questions? So let's go back. Let's, let's look what the argument is, has been said so far, clear back to the beginning of Romans, so that we're, we're caught up and we know what's going on in the book of Romans and so that we can, we can jump into where we're at in Romans 6. Paul is writing a letter from Corinth as he prepares to start out on a new church planning adventure to Spain. He has been preaching the gospel for 25 years now. He has planted thriving churches over much of the Mediterranean where he has had to hammer out his theology mainly through much opposition, both inside and outside the church. So this is a, a, a man that's planted many churches who has been preaching the gospel and there's been pushback inside the church, outside the church, in all different places. So he's been hammering out what the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus is. This letter is what it is. It's written to the church at Rome, which is made up of a mix of converted Jews and Gentiles. Probably at this time, at the time of writing, there's probably more Gentiles in the church than there were Jews. The letter itself really gives no clear-cut purpose. Like Paul doesn't say many times, you know, we know that the Corinthian church, he's writing to respond to a letter that they sent him, right? In the two Corinthian letters. And in different places, Paul tells us, okay, I'm writing this because I see this or because of that. There's really no clear-cut purpose in Romans. Paul is not correcting people or refuting false allegations or even correcting doctrine. Although the letter is very much 
a doctrinal letter. And in the section we are looking at, it looks like he's arguing with someone because he's posing questions, right? He's posing questions. The letter is basically a missionary letter asking the church in Rome to partner with him on his mission to Spain. Now, it's pretty neat that whenever you look at the letter that way, it's like, oh, I mean, he gives all this doctrine to show those in Rome, this is why I'm going to go preach the gospel, right? This is why my heart has been changed. This is why it doesn't matter shipwrecks or, or people trying to kill me or imprisonment. It doesn't matter. This is why I want to preach the good news of the gospel to everybody. Found within Paul's support letter, we find the very core of Christianity, right? Within this letter is the very core of Christianity, the very reason why you're sitting here and not over at St. Michael's this morning, right? The Reformation. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says this. This is the heart of the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I mean, you need to take some time and just to meditate on that. That, that, wait a minute, how is the good news, me declaring what Jesus has done, is somehow the power of God? It's interesting. It, it would really allow us to lower our standards and lower our expectations whenever we do share the good news of Christ. Do you understand? It's not how well you do it or or the way you do it, but the fact that you do do it and allow the gospel, the power of God to work in a person's heart through the Holy Spirit when he causes them to be born again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the good news, the gospel, is that we are saved by faith alone. It is our faith, not our works, that saves us. Everyone should be amen. It is not our works. It's our faith in what Christ has done that saves us. The good news. Salvation, redemption through Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the, the theme of the letter, the way that you are made right before God, the way you're justified, the way that you will be able to stand before him on the last day is through your faith in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that faith is a gift given to you when you are born again by the Holy Spirit. And, we're, and he's going to unpack it in chapter 5, why that is the case. So as he's pursued... Uh, Proceeded through this letter, chapters 1, 18 to 5, 21, is Paul's case for justification by faith alone. The first three chapters, he's like, okay, everybody, you're all sinful, all right? You got that? That's what he does in the first three chapters. He does leave no stone unturned. Nobody can hide. Nobody can say, oh, but the world around me tells me I'm a good person. I just got to look inside. No, it's not what the Bible says. The creator of the universe you know, divinely inspired this word and says something different about you. Again, we're going to look at that today. He says, all are sinful. God, and in verses three, uh, chapters 3 through 5, God justifies us by faith. That's kind of Paul's argument. Chapters 6 through 11, Paul addresses some objections to justification by faith alone. Now, we don't think many, all the, the people I read, they really don't think that there's someone actually, like, pushing back against him He's just being a good teacher. 
He's just thinking of objections that you might have as you're reading this letter, as the Romans are reading this letter, and say, oh, but what about this? Oh, but what about this? Or you might think this, or you might think that. It's just what a good teacher does. So chapters 6 through 11 deals with some objections that Paul came up in his own mind that maybe he has experienced, but not anything specific within the Roman church. Chapters 12 through 15 is application, just like many of Paul's letters, right? The beginning of it is this is why you should do it, because this is who you are and what God has done. And then the, the back half of the letter is now go do it, not to earn your salvation, but because of everything that God has done for you. Right? That's the Christian walk. That's the Christian faith. And chapters 15 and 16 are some personal matters in final greetings. So beginning in chapter 6 and ending in chapter 8, Paul addresses objections. There's no evidence that he is responding again to anyone specifically. Paul raises these objections through questions. He's asking questions. Romans 6, 1-2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Now, Paul must have said something earlier in chapter 5 that would have raised an objection, in his mind at least, right? A wise teacher always anticipates difficulties. Something is going on between the relationship with grace and sin, right? So Paul must have said something back here in, in chapter 5, right, that would make him think, that someone would say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And I think we find that in, in chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's what he said. That's, that's what's causing this in his mind to think through, okay, wait a minute here. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he's saying, oh, wait a minute. If someone reads this, they might say, well, good. Then I'll just go sin all the time and I'll get more grace, right? That's what he's addressing here. Theological term is antinomianism. It's the idea that, that we can just live however we want because grace abounds, right? Well, not exactly. Because of the second question, which I think is actually an answer that he then unpacks the rest of chapter 6. By no means, how can we, we, who died to sin, still live in it? There's no way that we can just continue sinning and sinning and sinning, thinking that, that grace is going to abound more and more and more, because we have died to sin. The argument is found, this bigger argument from chapter 5, verse 20, is found in 12 through 20 of chapter 5. Let me just read that. And, and this, this kind of gets twisted around. If you're, you're following Paul's argument here, you're going to get twisted in knots. And I'm going to just back away from it a little bit and pull out two threads that I think is going to help us understand what chapter 6 is telling us, but also understand what Paul's trying to argue here um, in the simplest of ways, because I need simple things to understand what, what, what is happening here. Um, so let me read it. And again, just stick with me. It's a little bit long and, and it gets kind of twisted around a little bit. So it says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where, the law is, where, where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over the, uh, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the man were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that's a mouthful. But that's his argument. So, what is the main point? What is he trying to say here? Well, the main point of these verses is this. God declares sinners to be righteous through covenant representation. God declares sinners to be righteous through covenant representation. So what does that mean? Well, this is the, the operative principle by which God declares sinners righteous. To give you an illustration, this is how God's divine bookkeeping works, so to speak, trying to pull something from something that we understand, that we use every day, into God's economy here. What you were in Adam, his actions of disobedience was credited to your account. You were born that way. That everything that Adam did was credited to your accounts, like a, a bookkeeping idea. When you are in Christ, his obedience is now credited to your accounts. We all should say amen to that. A covenant is an arrangement by which God saved his people. A binding contract with legal dimensions, however, a covenant is also a relationship. So yes, it is a contract. If you go way back and you think about Abraham in, in, in Genesis 15, I think, wherever he's making a covenant with Abraham, the amazing thing about the covenant is, is they cut animals in half and they line them all up, right? And he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. Then what does he do? He, he has Abraham, he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God passes through the animals. And Abraham doesn't pass through it. And what God is saying, I'll fulfill both sides of the covenant. I'm going to fulfill both sides of the covenant. So everything in the Old Testament... God is fulfilling, and how did he fulfill Abraham's side of it? Through Christ, Jesus. It's amazing how much God loves us. So let me give you an example of a covenant arrangement that also has a relationship and, and love in it, right? Right? Some of you are in that kind of relationship right now. Some of you are in that kind of covenant right now. It's called marriage, Right? Now, we don't call it a contract, right? Maybe some of us think of it as a contract, and that's where we step and get in trouble with our spouses and why marriages struggle sometimes, right? We, we don't come home from work and say, hello, officially documented spouse of my life. 
who I have contractually entered into negotiations with long ago and reached an agreement, and here is your obligation, and here is mine. If you don't live up to your obligation, here is the penalty. And if you keep your obligations, here is the blessing. We don't talk like that, hopefully. But I'm telling you, brother, sister, whenever you are looking for a spouse and you are in a relationship and you're saying that that person completes me or that person does something for me, this is exactly how you're talking. Because what a marriage is is when both people are, are looking to Christ and loving Christ and, and the husband is, is, is just giving his life to his wife and his, and his wife is submitting to, to that kind of leadership. And it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel is and, and what the, the bride of Christ, the church is, and what, what Jesus has done for us. We don't talk like that, though. But the relationship you are in is called a covenant, right? It is a covenant relationship. It has legal dimensions to it, but it is also a relationship. It also has that part called love. And brother and sister, no matter where you're at today, no matter how much struggle you have, no matter how far you think you are from God, God loves you. Especially if you're his child. See, this is how God relates to us. There is a covenant and there is love. There's two threads that run through this passage in chapter 5. Each one of them points to a covenant. So let's unjumble everything that he tried to say there um, to the best of Joe's ability and hopefully to be clear for you guys. There's one covenant. It's called the covenant of works. The arrangement in the garden with Adam and Eve by which they would be saved by works. The original arrangement of how God would relate to his people was through works. God demanded perfect obedience from Adam and, and they related in terms of works. He says, I created you. Here's all that I want you to do. Right? If Adam obeyed, he was blessed. If he did not, he was judged. And I'm talking before the fall. This is how it was arranged. But there's something different about Adam than there is about us because of the fall. Before the fall, the only thing that Adam could do, the only thing that Adam wanted to do, the only thing that, that pleased Adam, the only thing that gave joy to Adam's heart, the only thing that would set his mind on anything was to obey God. He didn't know anything different until Satan came in. Right? He didn't know any different. His only desire was to obey God. That's it. There was no questioning it. Right? He was completely satisfied in God. Completely satisfied. But of course, we all know what happened, the fall. And as early as Genesis 3, God instituted a second covenant, the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace, the arrangement with his people after the fall of Adam and Eve, by which he saves us by grace. He saves us by grace. The covenant of grace runs clear from Genesis 3 to the end of the book. The covenant of grace says God does not save you by your works. He saves you by grace through faith in the work of Christ. Each of these covenants have a representative, right? Each covenant has a representative. God appoints someone to act on our behalf. This should be simple to understand because we live in a representative democracy where we vote people to go to Washington and then they vote in our place, right? We don't vote on every law. They don't throw it up on the internet for every all 
300 million people to read and vote on. We elect representatives and we send them to um, different places where government happens and they represent us, right? And for the good or bad, we experience the consequences of their actions, right? They, they vote on a law, the law gets passed, it changes something. Every law, good or bad law, it doesn't matter. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that every law changes and affects somebody, some way, right? And this is what, what Paul is arguing here. The difference is that in God's economy, what is true of the representative is also true of you. Now, thankfully, sometimes we, we know somebody or we get to learn somebody, we vote them in and they go there and when they find out that they're just a bad egg, right? Well, there's another election cycle moving on. But whatever happens to them doesn't really account for who I am. But in God's economy, the way God set things up, it does, right? So what is true of Adam is true of you if you are in Adam, right? If you have not been born again, if you are not in Christ, everything that's true of fallen Adam is true of you. The good news is everything that is true of Christ is true of you if you are in Christ. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is exactly who you are if you are in Christ. Let me sum up what Paul says about these two representatives. Adam was disobedient, resulting in condemnation for those he represented, all humanity. Everyone after the fall falls into this category. This condemnation brings us death. Every person born, every person born is in Adam. His disobedience is credited to them if you're, if you're keeping the, the bookkeeping idea going, but it's also true of them. That's what Paul is arguing here, right? Jesus was obedient, resulting in justification for those he represented, the elect. This justification brings us life. This justification brings us life. Why? Because he was perfectly obedient. He went to his knees, he found out what the God Father wanted him to do, and he went and did it. He was without sin, Hebrews tells us. He was perfectly obedient. So every human being on this planet, right now today, is either represented by Adam or they're represented by Christ. There's not us against them at all. If you're sitting here today and, and you're in Christ and you know this about you and you're saying, oh man, I can't believe what Christ has done for me. It's not like, okay, they're bad people or, or they're bad. No, your heart should be broken that they're not here. And that should com compel you to go t share the gospel with them. It's not pound your chest. I'm so glad I'm not like that person as the Pharisee did. It means that, wait a minute, if I'm in Christ, that means that I'm following Jesus and Jesus served everybody. And who did he spend most of his time with? Unbelievers, those that were in Adam. That's where he spent all his time. That's what he spent his life doing. So again, every human being is represented by either Adam or Christ. This is 
Paul's argument. You can t- I'll send you these notes and you can follow right down through. Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus. Right? We were joined to Adam. We are now joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says our salvation is certain as that. We are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, all that belongs to him will become ours. This is why he is our ultimate treasure. This is why he is our ultimate treasure, because everything is now ours. We are now in Christ. Which brings us to Paul's statement. Romans 5, 20 to 21. Now the law came and increased the trespass, but where sin has increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 13 helps us understand this statement. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted there where there is no law. Remember, Paul's asking this question. Okay, if, if grace is, is abounding because we sin, then why don't we just go sin all the time? He's trying to figure this out. He's trying to teach this and and show the objection. So in Joe's words, basically, and please correct me if this illustration falls down after the service, in, in Joe's words, basically what he is saying is since the law came, it created a scoreboard. So when 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 God gave the Ten Commandments, now you know how you're breaking his law. Now you know how you're being disobedient. And then there's all these other laws that that he wrote out for Israel. Some pertain to today and some do not. But it created a scoreboard. Okay? Here's a law. You broke the law. Here's a point for Adam's team. Again, I'm trying to think of it simply for Joe. (laughs) But the good news is that for every point Adam's team gets, Jesus, through his obedience, gives his team Two points. So the logical conclusion is this. Why not keep on sinning? We are winning the game because grace abounds. Does that make sense? That's kind of what Paul's trying to show us here. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what Paul does is answer this question with a question. And then unpacks it in the rest of chapter 6. Romans 6, 2 says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the first thing we need to see within this verse is the subtle but powerful point that Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his commentary. Um, Our English version uh, loses some of the punch of the little word, we. We. It should be like, we, how shall we? He starts with we, which gives it more emphasis. And what Paul is doing is showing us who we are in Christ. So that we is just not a a pronoun. He's saying, saying, you are in Christ. How can you who are in Christ, right? How can we continue to sin? The whole emphasis is in our uniqueness, our special position. We being what we are. 
You have a position before God. If you are in Christ, His obedience has been counted to you, and you stand before Him righteous because of your faith in what Christ has done. Paul says, if you truly realize who you are and what your position is, this question that has been raised automatically goes out the window. It just goes out the window. There's no way we who are in Christ can continue to sin. In other words, the real trouble with Christian people who do not, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking, in other words, the real trouble with Christian people who do not understand the doctrine of justification by grace through faith is that they do not realize who and what they are. They do not realize their position. They do not realize their identity. That's why whenever we gather in our community groups, one of the questions will always be, who is God? Right? Who am I? Who am I in light of what Christ has done for us? To see your identity. Because as you see your identity, you then see all that Christ has done for you, and then your satisfaction in Him grows. And as your satisfaction in Him grows, you sever the root of sin, because whenever you come up to the point of sinning, you're like, that doesn't look good to me. Christ looks good to me. And you'll turn from that sin, and you'll choose Christ, and you won't sin. And that's how you are sanctified. That's how it works. Over and over and over again. What is this position that Martin Lloyd-Jones is talking about? This position is simple. We have died to sin. We have died to sin. The form of the verb here in the Greek is an aorist tense, which points to an event or an act that has happened once and has been concluded. Not a process. It has happened once, and it's concluded. You are dead to sin. You have died to sin. It no longer has any power of you if you're in Christ. I have died to the penalty, guilt of sin, and I have died to the power of sin. The reign of sin has been brought to an end. It no longer reigns in you if you are in Christ. The only way if it reigns in you is if you continually choose Sin. And I would venture to say, as I, I've just been saying, that the reason why we continue to choose sin is because we haven't spent enough time with Jesus to see who he is, to see who we are, to see that everything that he has done for us. The reign of sin has been brought to an end. When our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, he brought the reign of sin to an end in the case for all believers, all of those who are in Christ. This is who you are. This is your identity. I am free from the penalty of sin, the penalty I deserve, God's wrath. Christ took on the cross, and when Christ rose from the dead and defeated death, he took the power of sin with him. What Paul was saying is that at the moment we are regenerated, or at the moment of our justification, because regeneration brings about faith, not the other way around, brothers and sisters. Right? We're not cruising around life in Adam, only being able to choose um, to disobey. Then all of a sudden, oh, we decide to follow Christ. No, you hear the gospel and God sends the Holy Spirit to change your heart. He gives you the faith to be able to turn from sin to Him. 
It's a beautiful thing, and it's all of grace, and it's all of God. It's a beautiful thing. At this moment, we are dead, completely dead, to the power and reign of sin. You and me, right now. Now, I know <laughs> that every one of us, including me at this moment, let me learn from Paul and raise an objection to try to help us. Now, I know that every one of us is, is probably thinking, if we're paying attention at all, you're probably thinking, Joe, I still sin. I still feel the power of temptation and power of sin. How can you honestly say that I'm dead to sin? Simply put, there's a difference between what is true of our position as a fact and our experience, right? See, one day, whenever we are in glory, one day, right, our position and our experience will come together. <laughs> but until then, we're still struggling with that. But what the Bible shows us and what Paul's saying and what the Bible tells us, what Jesus tells us, is in between that, if we continually look at everything that Christ has done for us, this gap keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and we stop stumbling into sin more and more and more. And once we realize that we are dead to sin. Here the Apostle Paul is concerned with our position and what he says is, is every person in the world at the minute is either under the reign of rule of sin or else under the reign and rule of grace. You cannot have a foot in each position. You can't. We go to 1 John, which we're going to at the beginning of the year, and see all that he says about that. As Christians, we once were under the reign of sin because of Adam. Now we're under the reign of grace because of Christ. Grace abounds. You, saint, are dead completely to the rule and reign of sin. We live under the reign of grace. We are not merely forgiven our sins. We have been transferred to the reign of grace, which is very powerful reign. The reign of grace guarantees to produce results. Just as the reign of sin produces death, the reign of grace produces a result. What is that result? The power of reign of grace guarantees our final salvation. That means that the reign of grace is going to get us there to that day when we're looking at Christ face to face and we can stand there and be counted righteous because of all that Christ has done for us. It will bring about our final salvation. The whole object of grace is to destroy sin in all its works. Beloved, do you believe this is your position today? Do you believe that this is your position today? This is who you are. That this is your identity? Given to you through Christ's life, death, and resurrection? freely given to you through the preaching of the gospel and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us the example of Abraham in chapter 4. If you backed up, maybe whenever you go home, go and read through chapter 4, and he's going to show you how this faith produces this, how, how faith helps us get through this. Paul exhorts us to become children of Abraham in chapter 4 of Romans and to do what Abraham did. There was Abraham, an old man of 99 years, and Sarah, a woman of 90 years, and God came to him and said, Abraham... 
I'm going to give you a child. You are going to have a son, an heir, the heir of promise. Abraham, an old man in Sarah's womb that was closed. It was entirely contrary to nature. But God said that to Abraham. It seemed impossible. It seemed utterly ridiculous. But Abraham was not staggered by unbelief, but was made strong by faith. He believed the word of God. He believed simply because God said it. And you and I have to do the same here. You must believe it because God said it. This is who you are. Whatever you may feel, whatever you experience, your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. We are in Christ, and we are under the rule and reign of grace. I died to the realm and the rule of sin when I became a Christian, and I'm dead to it now. And when I fall into sin, as I often do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. You are in Christ you are under the reign of Christ, of, of grace. Therefore, you shall not, you cannot go on living in sin. See, this is Paul's argument in the first two verses of six, and he's gonna unpack it the rest of the way. The question for us today is really simple. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is who you are? Do you believe this is all that Christ has done for you? Do you believe that the next time that temptation comes, that, that that temptation has no power over you? That's why you get yourself a promise and you hold it and hide it in your heart. And then you trust in that grace that's coming. Why? Because we are in the reign of grace. That's the Christian life. Do you believe it today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray that you would help us. Help me see this. Help me see that, that I am dead to sin, that I do not have to give in to the temptation. I just need to hold on to, to a promise from God, to hold on to, the, to your grace that is coming, that is already there. Father, just help us to see this today. Help us to understand it and to walk in it. Help us to put aside anything that we define ourselves as and allow Scripture to define us. We are in Christ. We are a child of God. We are dearly beloved. We live in the reign of grace. We are dead to sin. Father, I pray that you help us. Please see that. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.